synergism describes the interaction and the cooperation between two or more parties to bring about a result. And the result that comes as a consequence of the synergism between the parties is greater than either of the parties could have done on their own. And so you see often in businesses, sales organizations, this emphasis upon cooperation and getting together and helping each other. Synergism. Unfortunately, the church has grasped onto that concept and made it an operational foundation in Christianity. And they've done it in this fashion. I do my part, God does his part. That's synergism. God does his part, I do my part. The problem with that is, that's not true. It is true perhaps in the business world, in the educational field, medical practices, all different kinds of human organizations and structures, but it is not true of the Christian life. I do my part, God does his part. That is not true. That is not true. Paul frequently encountered that very emphasis in his day in the churches that he started and that he continued to teach. It came by way of the Judaizers. You know the Judaizers, you've heard enough about them, but just in case you don't understand and remember, the Judaizers said that to become a complete justified believer, you had to fulfill the law plus Christ. So that you did your part, God did his part, and combining together, you became justified. And Paul encountered that problem frequently. He encountered it in the church in Galatians, Galatia. The book of Galatians resulted as a consequence of that problem and error creeping into that church, and he wrote a letter to them to correct them. Another book he wrote to correct that same error in a different church was the church at Corinth. The church at Corinth came under the influence of Judaizers and other misinformed prophets, I'll call them, for lack of a better term, who antagonized the church at Corinth against Paul, criticizing him. He's not very good. I mean, his letters are weighty, but whenever he comes to speak, he's nothing. No big shakes. Why do you follow Paul? And they brought in the doctrines of the Judaizers, emphasizing works in addition to faith for justification. 
Besides, Paul doesn't really want to come here again. He says he wants to come here again, but he really doesn't want to come here again because you notice all of the interruptions that keep coming into his life. And he says, I'm sorry, I can't come because of this interruption and that interruption. He doesn't really want to come back here again. Thus, and many other false accusations they brought against Paul. So that Paul, in the eyes of the Corinthian church, had diminished in his influence, and they had lost respect for him and for what he taught. So Paul wrote them a second letter, 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians was written to rebut, if you will, refute the accusations that I've just mentioned, plus many others throughout the book. They're scattered throughout the book. That Paul wrote to them to correct the errors that the Judaizers and the false teachers had brought into the church. I want us to look at just one of them today. And that one we find described in chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And we'll look at one of them that he refuted. And what he taught them and how he corrected them. And the meaning of the correction in their lives. I mentioned that one of the things the Judaizers brought in was the emphasis of the Old Covenant merging with faith in Christ. You had to fulfill the Old Testament law in addition to faith in Christ in order to be justified. And in chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, Paul refutes that accusation and that false teaching. Synergism. And he points out to them that Christianity, in fact, beginning with regeneration, the very beginning of Christianity in the life of a believer, comes from a monergistic work of the Holy Spirit. It's his work from beginning to end. His work and his work alone. Man has nothing to contribute at the very beginning he is dead in trespasses and sins so he has no life to contribute to somehow help his life in Christ he needs a new birth entirely the work of the Holy Spirit it doesn't end there the work of the Spirit of God continues on so that the ongoing life of the believer rests on the work of the Spirit of God within them. And Paul takes chapter 3 to explain that to them. Now he starts out by calling it, in verse number 6, the New Covenant. And reminds them that he taught them, he preached to them the gospel of the New Covenant. Now you'll remember a few studies previously we looked at the references in the Old Testament that where God through his prophets said I will make a new covenant with you 
We find that in Jeremiah 31. We find it also referenced in Ezekiel 36. It's also referenced in Isaiah where God promised them a new covenant. Not like the old one. A new covenant. I will put my law on your heart and I will put my spirit within you and my spirit will cause you to walk in my decrees, my judgments, my statutes. So way back, long before Christ ever came, God told them that a day would come when he would bring the new covenant, place the law upon their hearts, put the Spirit of God within them who would cause them to walk in them. Paul's reminding them, when I came to you, I taught you the gospel. I proclaimed the gospel, the new covenant. And you notice he says there in verse number 6, it's not of the letter, but it's of the Spirit. It's the work of the Spirit of God. Now, the rest of the chapter, Paul begins to contrast this new covenant, this new ministry of the Spirit, with the old to show its superiority and the ways in which this new covenant, this new gospel that he proclaimed to them would surpass everything that the Judaizers were demanding that they fulfill. There's seven of them that he lists as ways that it is superior. I mentioned the first one in saying that it is a ministry of the Spirit. It is a work of the Spirit. It is not a work of the flesh. It is not works. It is not something that you attempt to fulfill on your own. It is a ministry of the Spirit. And he describes that in verse number 6 that he calls it the ministry of the Spirit. So first of all, it is a work of the Spirit of God. It is a new covenant, and it is a ministry of the Spirit of God. Now again, the Old Testament Scriptures promise, not just relative to the new covenant, stating that the Spirit would, I would place the Spirit within you who will cause you to walk in my precepts but in other scriptures God through his prophets promised the spirit of God who would come one of those places is in the book of Joel where he promised that in the latter days I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your old men will dream dreams and your young men will prophesy and your women will prophesy and all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So he talked about the Holy Spirit. Now again, this would become different from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, very seldom do we read about the Spirit of God indwelling anyone. We read it about, interestingly enough, Samson. We read it about Joseph. Joseph. The Joseph who went down into 
who served in Egypt as second in command of the Pharaoh. But usually the Spirit of God came upon people for a task or for a time period. But it wasn't a lasting experience. Some instances, yes, but not usually so. Nor was the Spirit within them as a common practice. Now, the Spirit of God comes to reside within all believers as the commonality of believers in Christ. Jesus, the night in which he was betrayed, John 14, 15, and 16, preached about that very fact. I'm going to leave you, and it's necessary for me to leave, because if I don't leave, the Spirit won't come. And I will pray the Father, and he will send the Spirit. And the Spirit will come, and he will dwell within you. And in that day when you love me and you obey my commandments, I and the Father will come and we will make our abode with you. The Father and the Son, by the Spirit of God, live and dwell within believers. Far different from the Old Testament. No longer a system of works. Now a system depending upon the Spirit of God. And then he goes on to explain in those chapters some of the things that the Spirit of God will do. Not all of them. There are many things in the scriptures that tell us the work of the Spirit of God in the life of the believer. There he said, he will take of the things of Christ and he will disclose them to you. So we have Paul describing for us here in this chapter that the work of the Spirit would be from within us. That He would produce in us this new covenant. We see that this ministry of the Spirit is a ministry of righteousness. In verse number 9, he calls it the ministry of righteousness. The work of the Spirit of God within us as believers will produce righteousness. That's his aim. He is the Holy Spirit. He will produce within us holiness, righteousness, sanctification. That's his ministry. That's his work. It is a ministry of righteousness. We notice further that as we come towards the end of the chapter, it says in verse number 18, it says, And we all with unveiled faith. Well, let me back up to the Moses thing, because that has to do with the last couple of them that he mentions. Let's back up to verse 12. Since we are, since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. 
Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So we've seen that the ministry that Paul brought to the Corinthian church in the gospel was the new covenant. It was a ministry of the Spirit. The Spirit of God would dwell within us, within them as believers. A ministry of righteousness. Now we see it's a ministry of transformation. He will transform us. He will transform them. The teaching that he brought to them was to remind them that work of the Spirit of God within you will transform you. Well, how will it transform them? From one degree of glory to another. It will transform them in freedom. It will transform them in permanence. It will transform them into the image of Christ. Now notice how Paul lays that out for them. He reminds them of an, of an experience that they knew. Moses went up on the mountain to receive the law. When he came down, his face shone. And he put a veil over his face. And it explains for us here why he put a veil over his face. It wasn't because of the brightness of the glory. It was because that glory was fading away. And he didn't want them to see that. So he covered his face so that they would not see the fading away of the glory. That's the old covenant. has a glory. But it's not a permanent glory. It's a fading glory. It cannot compare with the glory that will come by the work of the Spirit in the life of believers. The glory that the Spirit brings is lasting. It's permanent. i got to find my verse here. Verse number 11. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. The glory that the Spirit of God was to bring in the life of these believers would be lasting, not fading. It would be a lasting glory. Furthermore, he mentions to them that this glory would come with liberty. It would come with freedom. He says, where is that verse? Verse number 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Your translation might say liberty. It explains that how Christ, by His Spirit, comes to us and He brings to us freedom. Freedom from guilt. Freedom from the condemnation of the law. Freedom from works. No longer having to somehow please God by what you do to earn your salvation. Freedom 
liberty. We also see that this freedom illuminates. It says that that old law hardened. It blinds their eyes. They they, they didn't see it. They didn't understand. But, But when the Spirit comes, there's illumination. There's understanding. And we read elsewhere in the scripture, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, for example, Paul makes very clear, the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. Neither can he know them. They're foolishness to him. Why? Because they're spiritually understood. The Spirit of God illuminates the mind the understanding to see and to know. Paul in his prayer in Ephesians chapter 1, his prayer for the Ephesian believers, he prayed that God would give to them a spirit of wisdom and understanding. That they would understand the greatness of the power that caused them to believe that same power that brought forth Christ from the grave. Spiritual understanding, spiritual insight, that comes with the new covenant, superior to the old. We find further that it transforms. The glory of the old covenant faded. This one is permanent and increases, doesn't decrease, it increases. It grows. It grows from glory to glory to glory. It's a transforming work. So that Paul was urging them and reminding them that this new covenant that he had taught them would transform them by the work of the Spirit of God within them. Bringing them ever increasingly into conformity to Christ. Notice again, it's progressive. From glory to glory to glory. Now what is the glory we're talking about? You read down a little further and carry on into chapter 4. we find described for us what that glory is. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, Paul is making reference back to the ministry that God had given to him, the ministry of the new covenant, and we've looked at the aspects of that ministry, that that gospel, the, the ministry of the Spirit. Having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word by the way. That is a great challenge to the current method proposed by the megachurches. We don't have to use underhanded ways. We have to trick people to get them to come. Ernest Risinger said many years ago, if it takes a circus to get them in, 
it'll take a circus to keep them. Paul said, I don't use underhanded ways. I, I, I don't try and slide them in the back door. I don't try and trick them in to come and then when they're in there try and give them a, a watered down gospel. I, I, don't, I don't tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What is the glory into which the Spirit of God will transform us? The glory of Christ. We find in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, that God says He's spoken at sundry times and in various ways to reveal Himself in these last days. He has spoken unto us by His Son, in whom all of the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. We find in Colossians chapter 1 the same kind of a description by Paul given to the Colossian believers. How Christ is the embodiment of God. In Him all the fullness of God dwells. I believe that's Colossians 2. The Spirit of God will transform those believers, he said. He will transform you into the image of Christ from glory to glory to glory. And the main emphasis that Paul made to them was that this was a passive work. These are all statements of fact. You go down through the list and go through that chapter and you'll find them all statements of fact. This is what's going to happen. This is the truth. This is the description and definition of the new covenant. The work of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God will work in you. For where the Lord is, the Lord is the Spirit. And the Spirit will transform you from glory to glory. Will transform you. So Paul's message to his friends at Corinth completely refuted the accusations of the Judaizers to somehow synergize works with faith to bring about justification before God. No, Paul said, it's all a work of the Spirit of God. Now, how does that relate to you and me? How does that correlate to our day? Well, it correlates in every way. Because we hear the same message, don't we? We hear the same message in our day. I do my part, God does his part. I've heard people say that. That's not true. It's all of God. And it's all of grace. It's all a work of the Spirit of God. You had nothing to do with your new birth. That was a work of the Spirit of God. 
You have nothing to do with the production of holiness within you. That's the work of the Spirit of God. Working in you and through you, enabling you, giving you the desire even to seek after holiness. That all comes from God by His Spirit. And that work of the Spirit of God that Paul taught to the church at Corinth that the Spirit of God would do in them, He does in us. He transforms us from glory to glory into the image of Christ. The Spirit of God illuminates our minds. He teaches us. We don't have to go about with a veil over our face because the glory is fading. No, it says we with unveiled face reflect the glory of God. You might ask yourself a rather serious question. Does your face reflect the face of Christ? It's supposed to. You are to reflect Christ. When people observe you, they should observe, I'll use myself, when people observe me, they should see Christ in me. Some aspect of Him. And those who know me for any length of time should see that changing and increasing progressively so that what they observe of me now exceeds that which they observed of me five years ago, ten years ago, and on back in my life. That's the work of the Spirit of God. That's what He wants to do in your life. He wants to transform you increasingly, progressively, constantly, from glory to glory. So that with unveiled face, you will reflect the glory of Christ. That's a serious charge. What can we conclude? Because Christ has fulfilled the new covenant, we who have come to faith in Christ, I like the term Christ followers, everyone's a Christian in our day, even those who ridicule and mock the deity of Christ are somehow now calling themselves Christians. All you have to do, I heard one man say, is have the name of Christ in the title of your church somewhere, and that makes you Christian. So I suppose then that if I had a church that was called the Anti-Christian Church, that would be a Christian church. (laughs) By his definition. We who are Christ followers must reflect the glory of Christ. That's our calling. It began in the Garden of Eden. This isn't something new. This isn't something that suddenly came in A.D. 30 
it began in the garden when God created Adam and Eve he created them holy, righteous, upright he placed them in the garden in Eden with the intent that they would continue to live in that fashion holy and upright when they sinned God made a promise that he would send someone who would crush the evil one why would he do that? so that there might become a way for us to become holy and when we come to the giving of the law in Exodus 19 preparatory to the giving of the law in 20 when God spoke to Moses he said I brought you out I redeemed you out of Egypt you are my chosen people and if you will obey my covenant you will be a holy nation we read in Deuteronomy chapter 4 we read there that one of the effects of their living holy lives is the other nations would see that and would say my what a God you have you have a terrific God who has all of these wonderful laws and commandments that you follow and then we come through the rest of the prophecies to finally the fulfillment in Christ we find it stated in Leviticus we find it stated in 1 Peter be ye holy for I am holy holiness is not an option holiness is not something reserved for super saints holiness is not something reserved for the martyrs Holiness should be the mark of every believer. That's what God has called us to. And Paul points out to his friends at Corinth the means by which they will become progressively holy in practice, in life. Notice it is entirely a work of the Spirit of God. these truths have some implications I've already mentioned and alluded to some of them what changes do they require what changes do they require in your life in my life well we must understand the ministry of the spirit the ministry of the spirit of God in our lives as believers God sent him there God gave him to us he by the spirit comes to dwell within us purposefully to change us to conform us transform us glory to glory as I mentioned some time ago Quit working so hard. Rest. Rest in the Holy Spirit. Rely upon Him. Trust Him. As Paul said in Romans 6, offer your bodies to Him. Present yourself to Him. 
No longer presenting yourselves to the evil one as slaves to him. Present yourselves to God. Offering yourself to him for him to work in you. Paul said in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who is at work in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Trust him.